Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine. I'm Chris Marshall and on this edition of the podcast we speak to Jim Sillers, a former deputy leader of the SNP. Sillers, a recent high-profile critic of Nicola Sturgeon, has said there is no chance a second referendum will take place on the First Minister's preferred timetable. He talks to Hollywood editor Mandy Rhodes. But first I'm joined by journalists Margaret Taylor and Louise Wilson to talk about what's been happening over the past week. And Louise, we've just uh, finished listening to um, Prime Minister Boris Johnson closing the Tory party conference. Was it all build back batter or build back butter? Um, I mean, it felt a lot like it. There was, there was a build back beaver and a build back burger as well, I think. Um, it felt to me very much like a best man speech. It was very yeah. joke heavy. It was, you know, he had the room in his hand. You know, it's it's kind of the environment that he almost became prime minister to be in. You know, it was quite policy light. I think there was only one concrete policy announcement and it won't even affect Scotland. Um and then just a lot of um, sort of a lot of reference to you know leveling up and and what they'd like to see, but not really any roadmap to get there. Yeah, I mean, Margaret, it, it, did it feel more like like stand up at times? I mean, Louise says it's like the best man speech. Yeah, completely, completely. Yeah, even when he was talking about serious matters like the pandemic and vaccinations. He was talking about needles going in like a collective sewing machine. He was encouraging people to have a a cautious fist bump. Uh, Even talking about the NHS when he was in hospital and like trying to make a serious point about a hole in the ground outside and then like bringing it back to the joke about was it him they were looking for in that hole? Yeah, it it was very, very joke heavy. And I mean, the, the audience seemed to appreciate it, but... I guess that's what we yeah. expect from him. I mean, yeah, it, it is kind of what we what we expect of, of Boris Johnson. But there, there there were a couple of real sort of handbrake turns for me. I mean, at one point he was talking about uh, clearly sort of referencing the the Sarah Everard case and, and talked about um, trying to increase rape convictions. But then, uh, you know, sort of segued straight into a, another joke after that. Do you think it kind of lends credence to? What Keir Starmer was saying last week, basically, that that Boris Johnson is is not a serious man; he's a trivial man. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and an awful lot of his jokes were directed at Keir Starmer, weren't they? The the kind of uh, the the lefty lawyers, the the mm. North London powder rooms, all that that kind of thing. Um, yeah, like it's funny. I mean, we've all heard about his after dinner speeches where he rolls out the same speech, and it just mm. it, it did feel like. A kind of elongated version of one of those, and probably a repetition of lots of jokes that he's he's wheeled out several times before. The the problem is, is for all his lack of seriousness, is that it probably won't make a dent in any any of the polling. You know, it's the kind of thing that because there wasn't actually any policy in there, it's difficult to then actually critique and say, well, actually, why aren't your government doing this? Why aren't your government doing that? Um, but it's so, also why he's popular, isn't it? That, that, mm. That's what people like about him. They like the jokes. They like the showmanship. Exactly. You know, he's he's a people person. Like yeah. that's that's where how he's yeah. got to where he is now. And I guess a lot of politics is about bringing the people with you, isn't it? But you've got to have policies yeah. at some point as well. Yeah, Louise. He had he had a pop at um, the SNP's Westminster leader Ian Blackford, uh, who 
has on occasion being referred to as a, a humble crofter. I don't know if he's ever referred to himself as a humble crofter, but um, the Prime Minister was saying that, uh, you know, now thanks to thanks to the Zoom chats that we occasionally see in the Commons, we can inspect Ian Blackford's library and billiards room in the background. But did he actually have anything more to say about Scotland than, than just um, a passing reference to, to Ian Blackford? No, there was that, and I think a passing reference to some to a wind farm up in Murray somewhere, and I think that was kind of it. Which I, I don't know. I, I guess did we expect more from him on the union? You know, he's, he has claimed that he's as well as being prime minister, he's also minister for the union. So it feels a bit weird that he just sort of ignored everything that's going on. But then I suppose if he, it, that would maybe lend to them being a bit more of a a more difficult discussion about about where the future of the union is and that's not really what he wanted his speech to be so he did also have his joke about uh john bon govey in an aberdeen nightclub which went very well with michael gove he looked like he was going to burst (laughs) yeah and uh, louise you had a bit of fun uh, earlier in the week with the whole build back batter butter and he, he uh he continued that riff with uh, as you say build back beaver and build back burger i mean what are we to make of that i mean like that clearly plays well with a certain constituency but um given given what we've all been through in the last year and a half with the pandemic is it is it is it what we really need at this particular juncture do you think I mean, there's an argument for there there needing to be a bit of that lightheartedness after the past 18 months. You know, we've all been through a horrible time. So actually, maybe the jokes were pitched pretty well, other than, as you mentioned earlier, some of the weird U-turns in it, which did feel a bit jarring. Um, so actually, you know, it's comms team who, who have written the speech maybe did a good job at making that because, you know, that's what will show in the news and, and on the front page of the papers tomorrow will be, you know, this jovial prime minister who is, you know, ready to take on the challenge of leaving, leading us to something a bit more optimistic. And, and you know, there's, there's that, this will feel a bit a bit weird to be talking about this in reference to the uh, conservative prime minister. But, you know, there's that Maya Angelou quote of people don't remember what you say, they remember how you make them feel. Yeah. And, and that's exactly what this speech felt to me like. Yeah, I mean, Margaret. He he mentioned uh, he mentioned his favourite newspaper uh, and former employer, the Daily Telegraph, mm-hmm. uh, during his speech. I mean, what what do you think the the response will be from from the London press to that speech? Yeah, I mean, I don't think they'll be able to ignore that, will they? Like, his his supporters will support him. Um, they'll like the fact that I mean, it was a very populist kind of speech, wasn't it? But I, I mean, you, you've spoken a bit about how jarring some of his U-turns are. I, I think the whole thing was particularly jarring that on, on the day that the, the uplift in universal credit is taken mm. away, he was talking about promoting opportunity and wanted to see that right across the country and how it's terrible that some children grow up in areas where they end up joining gangs, etc. But they're exactly the people who are going to be affected by the taking away of that, that £20 uplift and... Yeah, I, I mean, I think pr- probably some of the the North London lefty newspaper types will <laughs> will, will take note of that. But mm-hmm. the, the the whole, I mean, the, the leveling up agenda is 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 going to be popular, but we don't really have any detail of how how that's going to work. It comes back to be there being just not enough to actually critique in his speech. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. 
it's all very well saying we need to level up. Yeah, of course we do. Of course people need to be lifted out of poverty. Of course people need to be given jobs. Of course people need to be paid well for those jobs. And, oh, not pay too many taxes as well. There was a bit of a, a note of that, wasn't there, when he was talking about mm-hmm. high wage, high skills, high productivity, and therefore low taxation. But yeah. no detail of how any of that comes to fruition. And away from the, the Tory party conference, uh, Margaret, there's been a pretty significant judgment at the Supreme Court today. Yeah, yeah, there has. So th- this was one, it, it was two bills that were passed unanimously in Holyrood. Uh, in, I think they were both in March, actually, j- just in the final days of, of the last parliament. Um, one on the rights of children and one on local government powers. Um, they were both referred to the Supreme Court by the UK government because it felt that the, the, the Scottish government was overstepping its authority in, in some of the provisions within each of those bills. Uh, and they asked the Supreme Court to look at the legal position on that. And it, it ruled today. And yes, it has found that what what I, I think in the, the children's bill, there were three points at which as written, that that would be in contravention of the Scotland Act. And similarly with the the, the local government one, um, it would be in contravention of the Scotland Act. So, um, yeah, it it, it ruled that as as they stand, the the bills can't pass. Yeah. And Louise, there's been quite a lot made of this by by the Tories in Scotland. But, I mean, is it a little bit hypocritical, given that they actually, as Margaret says, voted through the legislation in the first place? Oh, there's so much spin around it, and and it's really bizarre because we only really heard um, that the UK government might challenge it in like the weeks, like literally the weeks before stage three was passed. I mean, apparently these conversations were going on behind the scenes between the two governments for ages, but you know we didn't really know anything about about that. The presiding officer ruled it competent. All the parties voted for it, so obviously they didn't have any concerns about this until the UK government said actually we're going to challenge this in court. Um, so, you know, the Tories are now saying that the SNP has let um, children down um, by, by not allowing it to be incorporated because, you know, they do back the idea of incorporating the, the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Um, and meanwhile, you know, the SNP is, is doing almost the reverse, saying, well, the UK government has challenged it in court so they can continue doing things that would break the Convention of the Rights of the Child. And of course, that's like neither of them are right. Like that's not what has happened here. It is very much um, a constitutional debate about what the parliament can make law on and what it can't. Mm-hmm. And do we know where this leaves us? I mean, is it is it one for the lawyers, or does it basically mean the legislation as passed uh, needs to be completely chucked out? Um, so it gets volleyed back to the parliament. Um, so we saw this in one of the Brexit continuity bills a couple of years ago. Um, we've seen it with named persons, although that has, has since been been scrapped, as we know. Um, but yeah, basically the parliament, it will go back to parliament and they'll get a chance to amend it um, as as we normally would with any bill. Um, so presumably they might just take the sections out that, that are um, in violation of the Scotland Act, of, of the bits that, that go into reserved areas um, and then it and then it would pass. So it, it could be a fairly simple process of just removing the sections that that, are, that violate it. Okay, but so by the sounds of it, one that's uh, likely to to rumble on for a while. And um, thank you both. And now Mandy Rose speaks to Jim Sillers. Jim, 
I was at an event, our event, last week, and Sir George Reid, who you know well, was speaking, and he was introducing Bruce Crawford, and he told a story about some school pupils coming up to him and saying, we ken you because we get taught you at school. And he said, oh, in modern studies. And they said, no, history. (laughs) (laughs) And I just wondered... Is that how you see yourself? Are you, you're part, such a big part of our political history. No, I, I, I see myself in contemporary terms. You know, I'm 83 now. You, you know, I'm not in the so-called front line. Uh, but I'm still involved. You know, I still write. I write the papers. I do articles. Um, engage in discussions with people. Uh, there's initiatives that I want to, still want to take. I mean, for example, I'm going to have an initiative which hopefully uh, will start a public discussion leading to a public debate, leading to public pressure to change the electoral system. You know, either to open the list or go to a multi-member PR system because I think the present um, closed list system is highly pernicious and damaging to political life in Scotland. Um, the, The bits of history I wrote... Um, I think it's interesting for younger people to realise, you know, when they talk about austerity today, to realise what austerity really was like as we went through the wartime, um, and what working class life was like, and what it was like then for someone from the working class to come up through the political system and go into a leadership position. Um, something that doesn't happen today among the working class. That's why in you know, my book, right at the end, I lament the fact that I think the working class is disfranchised. They can vote, but they, there's no representation uh, that people like myself, John Robertson and others, drawn from the trade union movement, could represent Dennis Skinner, could represent in a parliament on their behalf. Because if you haven't experienced working class life, you know, if you haven't been skinned, if you haven't been threatened with redundancy, if you haven't been made unemployment, unemployed, uh, if you haven't had to wait for a house, or you're living in bad conditions, now you can get in the labour movement You can get upper-class people and middle-class people empathising and coming down on the side of the working class, but they can never, ever feel it in their gut. There's no guidance system there. It's a more intellectual guidance system. Whereas someone like me, you present me with a problem and I'll give you instantaneously the working-class reaction. And my, my daughter's a very good example of that lives in a middle-class area, married to a businessman, present my daughter with an issue and you get the working-class reaction. And you wouldn't believe it if you met her, your teacher and all the rest of it. And we don't have that now. That might just be a woman's reaction, Jim. No, it's not a woman's reaction. It's, she's, she just has the, the natural experience from her. She was brought up in the working class and has that natural experience that gives her the instinctive response to any given issue. I mean, I guess what you're talking about there is resilience, apart from anything else. Do you believe that the working class... I mean, hardly anyone talks about class anymore, but you talk about it a lot, don't you? Well, at the end of the day, 
in a capitalist society, what matters to working people is the ability to sell your labour. That's fundamental. If you can't sell your labour, then you're a serf of the state. The state will tell you what you're going to get, what you're not going to get. If the labour market is in your favour, as it's now becoming in our favour at the present day, then the bargaining power of the worker improves enormously and therefore you're going to have a greater self-esteem, self-respect, standing in your own feet more and you're going to have a better quality of life. Well, let's talk about those roots then that you've referred to. So tell me, um, because this is a history lesson for lots of people and they need to perhaps understand your political journey and where you came in and where you are now. So let's talk about when you were growing up and what where your political roots came from. Well, I'm from a railway family. My grandpa was a railwoman and apparently my great-grandpa was a railwoman, my father was a railwoman, and I eventually ended up in the railway as well. Um, we lived in a house which was living room, bedroom, kitchenette, bathroom, and four in a block. Uh, we weren't poor, but we weren't well off because the railwomen theoretically were paid more than other people. And the biggest effect on me was the day the wireless told us that we had a Labour government. I mean, it was quite astonishing. Uh, my father went down and the four in the block opposite us was Mr. and Mrs. Logan. He was a minor. And my father and Mrs. Logan met and danced up and down the path. No music playing, didn't need music, and I knew something incredibly significant had happened in our lives. Um, and that was my introduction to the importance of politics. And I always remember, it was the way um, my father said it, a labour government. You know, this, was the, uh, this was something that really mattered. And then when they got beat in 51, I was standing in the same kitchenette when the wireless told us, I'm an old man. So I said, oh, we're in for it now. You know, this is going to be all. I was terrified. I went down to play a game of headers and my tennis ball with my pal, and I thought the sun would never shine again. You know, I was I was as terrified. Absolutely. This, I was waiting for the dreadful thing to happen to us because there was no Labour government. And, and did it? No, no, my father saw the Tory party like through the 1920s and 30s. You know, the hard-faced, couldn't care less about the working class. Because the Tory party had, Macmillan and Butler and people like him had changed the Tory party. But my father's generation never saw them as the new Tory party, as it were, the amended Tory party. Uh, we, we did really believe that all hell was going to break loose on the head of the working class. So for you, though, when did you become politically involved in the, in the, to the extent that you actually thought you could make a difference? Well, I, was, I, su- I suppose I was always political because I read the papers. We, we, we had um, the Daily Herald, was a Labour paper, and the Daily Express came into the house. My father bought the Daily Express because he was a gambler in the horses and its section was, the racing section was partly superb. But I read both. Um, so from an early stage, I actually read the papers. I remember Jimmy Bryson, whom I went to work for as a, a milk boy, 
me, I made, must have made a comment. And Jimmy Bryson sort of saying, I'd be about 11 or 12. Yeah, imagine, imagine that coming for you, you know. And I said, well, I read the papers, you know, and he was quite surprised. And the big issue was the railway strike. I was in the NUR, same as my grandpa. My father was in Aslife, the cream of the railway. You know, the engine driver was in fireman union. I was a fireman, but I was in the NUR. And I was not going to go on strike because my union was not going to go on strike. And there was one hell of a row in our living room. By this time, we were living in Belmont in the southern part of air. And I, you know, I was digging in my heels. My old man was going off his head. And it was my stepmother who said, listen, Jim, you can't be called a scab and a black leg. You know, the disgrace on the family. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you have to think of that. And you're right, you know, bang, I understood. So I went down and signed on with the Aslef, although I remained in the NUR. And that was an, that was an education. Because as I said to you, you know, the 1930s view that, that people had, all the speeches that were made by the leaders coming up to talk to us strikers, was all about the Tory government. It wasn't about the British Rail Board, you know, the real enemy was the Tory government. And of course, years later, I dug out the minutes of the cabinet, and lo and behold, the Tory government weren't our enemy at all. <laughs> they were desperate to get us back to work by any any means whatsoever. But that was a that was a real lesson for me in the importance of trade union solidarity. Did, did you at that point though? Did you think you would take it any further? I mean, no, 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 no. I mean, people like me, in a sense, you were still in a deferential society, um, so. Nobody like me thought I could become a councillor. Uh, a number of railmen in, in air were councillors, but I, I, you know, I didn't think anything like that at all. Uh, so I joined the Navy, you know, to, to see the world, as it were, and to avoid the army, believe it or not, because uh, um, we were doing national service in those days, and from what I heard about what was happening in the barracks in air, I was not for the army. And, and it might seem a, a you know, massive contradiction for me and my pal Bobby Etchells, who was another railwoman, to go up to Glasgow and join the Royal Navy, you know, for seven years. That's what my first time around, seven years. But the Navy was attractive because you were going to see places, whereas the army, you know, it looked dead. Dull. I'm a bit intrigued at what was happening in the barracks in Belmont. <laughs> well, well, it wasn't about it was down in the shore front near actually was the Royal Scots Fusiliers headquarters. So most of our lads who had got national service went into the Royal Scots Fusiliers and you know they were coming out after their initial training, telling us these stories about sergeants shouting at them and how dirty the place was and how snobby the officers were and it was dreadful. You know, the worst thing that had ever happened to them. And I thought, well, that's not going to happen to me. During that five and a half years, had anything politically... I mean, obviously, I'm trying to get to where your politics yes. then started to firmament, really. Well, I was Labour, you know, from my background in the strike. And Alan's in Hong Kong, after having tried to miss the army, I was assigned to an army unit, uh, combined operations called... Three Aotra Army. We were with a, a unit from the Royal Artillery, 
but we lodged with a big regiment of the Royal Artillery. But we were, you know, we used their facilities, but there's about 30 of us, we were separate. Our job, the reason that radio operators were attached to this unit, was that we would go up a mountain and we would spot the enemy. And then because the Army's communications were not the same as the Navy's, us naval operators would get in touch with a big cruiser 15 miles away and we would direct naval gunfire onto the enemy. You know, that's, that's basically, you know, what happened. Uh, so, I, you know, I land's there. And <coughs> it was mostly, the army was mostly national servicemen. There was, you know, a sergeant and there was a couple of lands corporals who were regular, but most of them were national service. It was a very good mix. And one of the soldiers was a guy called Tony O'Donnell, who's now, I'm afraid, dead. And him and I just struck it immediately. He was a Scot, which helped. <coughs> and he was more than the intellectual level of the officers. They steered their way around Tony. I mean, he was head and shoulders above them intellectually. And he was into socialism and Marxism. And, you know, him and I just sparked. And so... He said to me, you should read this, you should read that. So I was reading Marx, I was reading Engels, I was reading Labour people, uh, and him and I became very, very political uh, inside the unit, so much so that the officers steered their way round about us as well. <coughs> there was the commanding officer was a major. He had been captured by the Chinese in Korea. Very nice man, but... Um, he, you know, we were having political arguments because there was a couple of English public school boys, uh, National Service. So you can just imagine there was political arguments going on. It was very high level arguments for a, for a, you know, a barrack room, and the officers got to hear about this and didn't think this was a bad thing. Um, and the commanding officer decided that we would have one afternoon a week on current affairs discussions. <laughs> which he would lead. And uh, Tony and I took the pants off him. <laughs> Not literally. <laughs> really did. <laughs> no. uh, we, we got him to accept that colonialism had been bad for India and not good for China. <laughs> I'm not surprised they let you leave early, Jim. <laughs> and but he was good-natured about yeah, it. You know, um, he didn't, you know, he just thought he abandoned that. Yeah. Um, and we were reading Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell was a huge influence in both Tony and me. And so they, they actually drafted in a padre, you know, an army padre. <laughs> and we, we took the pants off him as well. <laughs> so, the, you know, the current affairs was abandoned. And uh, they, then, then they marched us all down in the barracks. Above the NAFI was the sort of conference room. So they marched the whole unit down, and here's another padre who started uh, telling us about Jesus, the carpenter boy. And I mean, this ludicrous stuff. So I waited behind, and I said to him, look, yeah, th this is, you know, this is nonsense. I said, you know, Hong Kong's full of refugees, you know, I mean, you know, where's the Christianity? And I'll think about it. So they marched us down the next week, 
And he actually said, you know, one of our company had said, but I think we have to begin at the very beginning of Jesus. You know? So at the end of it, I said to him, we'll not be back. And I said to the CEO, we're not going back. Yeah, well, that's it. Finish that. Nothing doing. So really, for you, it was the Navy that started the whole kind of political process and the debates, and, but not quite in the way I might have thought. It was, it was about those discussions. Yes. And when you came out then, wh- um, where well, did I, that continue? Well, my... You know, I was, I was really right into socialist literature. And Tony O'Donnell was quite a remarkable man. Um, when he left the army, went to university. I hadn't seen him for 30 years, and I'm walking down Bahrain Airport, and there's Tony, you know, in charge of it, big engineer. Um, we, we were really, because don't forget at that time, um, on the other side of the boundary was China, where the propaganda was going from the Chinese Communist Party, you know, that China was developing and socialism was a, you know, was a big thing. And at one period I was sent back to the Navy, uh, from the Army back back to uh, HMS Tamar. And, the, you know, the officers are passing through at nine o'clock and my locker is stacked full of Marxists and God knows what else. Uh, I mean, they're going like this as they went by. And I was steeped in it by then. And, of course, I could take them on. I was, I was more confident. I was able to take the officers on in an argument. In fact, I, I record my book. It's a very nice man, Captain Powell. We were out in the New Territories um, with a searchlight where we were supposed to get the searchlight on the refugees coming and you know, follow them and then arrest them. We didn't, we didn't do that. There was about a number of us, just squaddies, in a one-ton truck. And the officer, Captain Powell, had a three-ton wireless truck, which he could stay in, a great big tent that came off the wireless truck, a canvas bed canvas bowl, canvas chair. And I was gone with my all with the lads, because they're all national, telling them they got to vote Labour when they go home, you know, this sort of thing. And he shouted for me to come in and made a hell of a mistake. He said, man to man. Now, no officer should ever do that. So, man to man it was. And he told me that he was Labour, the same as me. But, before, and... He was a great supporter of Ernie Bevan. Because I said, Ernie Bevan's one of these right wingers. <laughs> and I wiped the floor with him in, the, in this one-to-one debate. In a man-to-man. <laughs> and, you know, that, that was me. I was, I was one of the leading um, debaters uh, in the unit. And I was growing in enormous confidence. You know, when I took on the officer and wrote my four-page in the Royal Navy, I did it uh, from a great position of confidence. And my wife and I, we took a civilian flight, not an army or a navy flight, uh, in Kowloon. And I wrote letters to the South China Morning Post. I engaged in debate I remember one debate was about capital punishment. And, uh, I mean, I'd never said I came for the Navy. I just signed my address. And my opponent was the chief inspector, I think, of prisons. <laughs> but he, he didn't know he was arguing with a naval rating. <laughs> so really, the education for you in the Navy was astonishing. I mean, it, it, it kind of almost was counterintuitive what was happening. Well, the, the, the 
I also used the Army uh, Education Service. It was a very, very good one. You know, so I did courses on English. I got O-levels in English and history and what they called then current affairs. And we got the Sunday Times and the Sunday Observer, maybe, maybe three days after they'd been published in the UK. And the... YWCA, not the YM, the YWCA had a position in a hotel on the waterfront and, you know, we could go there and there was no problem and, you know, it was a, a wonderful library. So we spent our time reading, debating and arguing and growing in confidence all the time. I, I came out an entirely different person than the one I went into. That's why I say, I've got, you know, I owe it a great deal. When you came out and you had to funnel and channel, surely, that political uh, knowledge somewhere. Well, I joined the Labour Party immediately. As soon as you came out? As soon as I came out, I, I joined the Labour Party. But I only joined the Labour Party to give out leaflets. You know, I, that was it. You know, Labour Party was important, so you, you join it. What do you do? You give out leaflets. Um, I never for a moment thought I'd ever you know, have any leadership position in it. But the organisational skills that I learned in the Navy very quickly became noticed in the local Labour Party. And before I knew it, I was an election agent, you know, volunteer election agent. And I was also uh, into the fire brigade and I was in the fire brigade union. And I became chairman of the whole area committee. No, because I had anything special, but nobody else wanted the job. So I said I would do it. So I had this duality going on, uh, active in the Labour Party, taking a leading role because I, I organised the elections and I had a leading role in the Fire Brigade Union in the west of Scotland because we covered the whole of the west of Scotland. And the Labour Party at that time had an informal but very good edu political education system it was run by a guy called J.P.M. Miller from his bungalow in Tillicoutry, believe it or not, funded by the TUC. And he ran courses, um, for example, how trade unionists would read a company's profit and loss account, uh, international affairs, defence. He ran some correspondence courses, but he had set up an informal system where, for example, a leading councillor, an MP, a leading trade unionist, would on a Sunday take a class. And it wasn't propaganda. You would discuss serious issues like economics, the Marxist theory, you know, where the difference is between dictatorship and democratic socialism. And the whole idea was to make us think deeper and stretch our minds. I mean, for example, they would say, right, Monday, uh, next Sunday, didn't matter what you think today, next Sunday you will argue, a millionaire, can he be a socialist? And you will argue that you can. Didn't matter what you think, that's what you've got to think about, and we'll have a debate on that. Or, incomes policy is essential for a planned economy. Now, you'll argue that. So my generation was brought up with informal but very good political education. And they would give us, tell us which books to read. 
Do you think that kind of thing happens now? No, this is the great tragedy. It doesn't happen, and I, you know, I can spot that it doesn't happen now. And it meant that the working class produced its own leaders. I mean, I'm I'm the last of a generation that produced its own leaders from the working class, and we had tremendous confidence in ourselves. You know, the the, the labour movement and the labour party was made up of working class folk, middle class folk, and very upper class people and intellectuals. A very good mix, but that working class element was critical that we felt ourselves the intellectual equal to anybody else. Who suggested to you that you should take that power, that confidence and that skill that you were learning and put it into politics and become elected? Nobody. You know, the, the, the important thing is that the working class leadership in those days, it just happened, it, you know, it was an evolutionary thing. Um, there was a seat going, why shouldn't, why, why, you know, somebody said to me, why, why shouldn't you stand for it? And you say, oh, no, right enough. I mean, I'm as good as anybody else. So no hesitation? No, I didn't have any hesitation at all. Uh, I mean, I, I went in, I became a councillor in air, and it was totally controlled. So, you know, and they were a very high quality of Tory intellectually. And so, you know, I was tested against them and found found myself as good as anybody else. And that, that wasn't just me, you know, that was the that was the experience of dozens of working class people and more than dozens of working class people. You realise, yeah, my vocabulary wasn't the same as theirs. I, you know, I realised that. But my intellectual ability was the same as theirs and my political instincts were better than theirs. But also emotionally, so when I look back... I was taught to speak in airship, believe it or not. You know, and they taught us how you put together the structure of a speech. But the Ayrshire um, way of speaking is oratory. Now, there's a difference between an orator and a good speaker. A good speaker knows exactly what he's going to say. An orator and knows the words he's going to use. An orator knows exactly what he's going to say, but doesn't he know the words until the words come? And that's how we were taught in Ayrshire. I mean, I can hardly, I, I find it almost impossible to read a speech. But I can think of preparation, and then it's just a headline note, a headline note, and a headline note. And I, I can put together a speech based on that, based on having done the homework. Um, and that, I fall into the orator class. Willie Ross was the same. You know, Willie Ross would go off, if Willie Ross was going to speak in a major debate in the House of Commons, didn't see Willie for three days. And what Willie did was he immersed himself in the subject. I mean, we were taught, that, that the first time they ever, uh, I was ever taught, they said to me, you got an hour's preparation for every minute you speak. I mean, that was nonsense, but that was the kind of attitude. You know, get, get yourself right into the subject. And Willie could come to the dispatch box, he could take any intervention on any point at all and continue, you know, and answer them all because he'd steeped himself. Davy Lambie was the same. Alec Neal was the same. And I guess that it comes back to that emotional thing. You believe what you're saying. Could you get up and read somebody else's speech? No, I can't do that. No, I, I, I couldn't do that. And when you got elected, Jim... I mean, given you've said you felt confident enough to go for it, why not? You got elected. Did it feel like a surprise? 
No. I had been a full-time election agent for the Labour Party. And, you know, that involved me in, in inertia anyway. We met our MPs all the time. So I didn't regard myself as different from an MP. Uh, you know, I hadn't been elected, but that's the only difference. Uh, so when I went to the House of Commons, I wasn't in the least bit phased. Uh, I, was, I was quite used to them. And I didn't think I was out of place. <laughs> because that is what a lot of people feel once they get in there. Well, the, the Scottish um, component of the Parliamentary Labour Party was uh, often despised. I remember Andrew Neil when he worked for The Economist, writing this dreadful uh, article uh, about the low quality of the West, West of Scotland working class. In fact, the SNP, I think, in their songbook have songs about it. Now, the reason was that they found themselves in an Oxford and Cambridge debating chamber where opposite them was people who'd gone to Eton, Oxford and, you know, could pull Latin phrases out the air. And our vocabulary was much more limited. I mean, my friend Ali Kiddy, for example, could never distinguish between militate and mitigate. But Alec had a tremendous sense of strength of character. So when a snigger came from... It didn't bother him. <laughs> he couldn't care less, you know. But others found it very difficult to sustain themselves with their limited vocabulary. And they tended to go to the bar. That's just what I was going to ask you. And that happened a lot, didn't it? Yes. And it was, it was a great tragedy because there was a huge amount of ability there. So did you see that as a... I mean, why did you even bother? Why didn't you just go to the bar yourself? No, I didn't need to go to any bar. Well, do you think that was a confidence thing for a lot of people? I, I was more confident than they were. Yeah. And in fact, um, Willie Small once said, Willie, Willie was the MP for Gascadden and he came from North Ayrshire. I mean, Willie said to me, I can't understand how you're so bloody confident. <laughs> but you were so confident you left the Labour Party. Well, it wasn't the confidence that left it. it, it you know, in re retrospect, it was a mistake to leave when we did, you know, but the number of us are culpable on that, not just me. I didn't lead people out, it just happened. Tell me why it happened. Oh, the, the October 74 election, we got a terrible fright in the Labour Party in the February 74, when suddenly there was seven SNP MPs. So October was definitely going to be, you know, quite a crunch period. And the Labour Party was really divided on the question of devolution and an assembly. Uh, but everybody knew that unless we had a policy, we were going to be in real trouble. So the National Executive in London, I mean, it still controls the Labour Party today, issued a statement committing us to an assembly. Willie Ross, Bruce Millen, and a whole number of others weren't happy about this at all. And, Will, and John McIntosh, more, more than I was, was the leading advocate of devolution, had been a devolutionist all his life. So Willie Ross and Alec Neal was the research officer of the Labour Party. So Alec was on the inside, so Alec could tell us what Willie was saying and doing. And Willie took a decision that neither myself nor John McIntosh 
would be taken in any part in the upfront campaign. Uh, and you know, that was it. Uh, the National Executive issued its statement, expected the Scottish Executive to endorse it, and here they did me. <laughs> All hell broke loose. This had to be reversed. Now, this is not democratic, right? But, you know, you're talking about real politics. Had to be reversed. So a special conference was called with, you know, the motion in favour of an assembly, and that's when the trade union vote was mobilised. Alec Kitson was a major factor in the trade union movement. Alec fixed the trade union vote, and we won the vote. So you were you against devolution or no, against? No, by then I was for it. Right. You know, very much for it. Um, so it went through, but most of the Labour Party didn't want it. You know, it was forced on them, but it was forced on them out of necessity. To support an assembly. Yeah. yeah. Then, of course, uh, the next thing that happened was suddenly John McIntosh and myself and Helen Little and George Fuchs, who were minor in, in the hierarchy but were very pro-devolution, we were called to the BBC and told that we are doing the party political broadcast on the assembly. No script. You know the policy, it's the National Executive's policy. So, on we go, it's John McIntosh's chair, and we're all committing the Labour Party. Uh, and after it, the guy says, that was brilliant, brilliant stuff, but can't put it out until it goes down to London, and they say it's OK because there's policy issues. Got a phone call saying, oh, out it's going. So... This was reckoned to be a broadcast that had a major effect on the result. So we're committed to a Scottish Assembly. Now, by then, I had been in the Tribune group for some time and had to deal with Harold Wilson, and I know how slippery Harold had become. Probably always slippery, but, you know, it was new to me. Um, so I knew, given my prominence in the campaign, that I'd be offered a job. I knew it wouldn't be anything that would take me anywhere near devolution, that it would be either environment or social security. Environment, I would go round about talking to third world groups about green grass. Social security, I would be going to talk to the anti-poverty action brigade and all the rest of it. And lo and behold, I got the call. Social security, which I had turned down. So I wasn't having it, you know. Uh, and I, I thought my, my pal Harry Ewing, who was a devolutionist, had got the Scottish office job. So I was absolutely delighted. That's fine. You know, our man's in there. And Harry and I lived in the same digs in, in London. And this is where I made a bad mistake. And I should have known better. But I never asked Harry for any papers or what was happening, because I knew that if there was a leak, Harry would get blamed. I would get blamed for the leak, and he would get blamed for telling me. So I never asked him. He just kept telling me everything was going great. And he did promise me that he would show me the white, he'd give me the white paper to read the day before it was published, because him and I were going on television together. And I went over to his office in the House of Commons, got the white paper, and I was, you know, quite happy. I went over to my office, and I was stunned by it. It was nothing like what we'd promised. You know, John Robertson summed it up 
beautifully when he said it's caged more effectively than a lion at the zoo. And what, what did he mean, though, by that? There was no power. Right. You know, everything, any power. I mean, for example, uh, control of Scottish uh, Development Agency. You could put, you could uh, nominate 50% of the board, but the Secretary of State chose the chairman. <laughs> There was no trade and industry powers that we had promised. So did you feel that the white paper that would have then helped create the assembly was just a sop to appease... There was a betrayal. A betrayal. I mean, I saw it as an... I, I, I thought my old man... My, my old man had invested his belief in the integrity of the Labour Party all his life, and they had used them. They had dangled this carrot in front of him and then took it away. Why as a Labour person, as a Scot, were you interested in the Scottish Assembly, but you wouldn't have joined the SNP at that point? Oh, the SNP. I mean, the, the SNP group was very right-wing. Who was in the, the group at that point? Well, there was God Wilson, yep. George Reid, Margaret Ewing, Douglas Henderson, who was to the right again, just Khan, uh, Winnie. Uh, they were, you know... And, and, you know I mean, it would be impossible. And for example, there was big debate about the um, shipbuilding, the, the nationalisation of shipbuilding. Now, everybody knew that it wasn't the cure, but what nationalisation of an industry did, it gave the workers a direct line to those who decided the future through our trade union movement. And the workers in Clydeside sent telegrams to the SNP group, because, you know, we only had about three or four of majority, asking them to vote. And it was Maureen Watts' father who got up in the House of Commons the telegrams and actually tore them up. <laughs> I mean, how could I possibly join that, that SNP? But at that point, you must have been really conflicted because you, your actions speak for themselves. No, no, I wasn't conflicted on independence. My, my, my journey from unionist, which I was, to independence was a slow burn. Uh, first of all, you go to devolution. That seemed to be, you know, that, that, that seemed to square the circle for me. Uh, this is something we need. That's fine, devolution. The problem um, with devolution is that once you get it, a you begin to expand your ideas of what you can do. And then you suddenly realise, oh, we haven't got those powers. So you go a bit further. And then you get to the point where you begin to realise, good God almighty, uh, it's independence that we need. But that's, that was a long process for me. So at that point, I mean, the thing that you say was a mistake, although that might be exaggerating at this particular point, but that rush of Scottish blood to the head that you no, described. No, it was a mistake. Um, I, setting up the Scottish Labour Party. Leaving the Labour Party. Leaving the Labour Party. Because I had, uh, my power base was the trade unions. I mean, I had been a full-time official at the Scottish TUC. And, and I had contacts with every union leader in Scotland. Uh, that was my power base. Left the Labour Party, lost that power base. Inside uh, the Labour Party, if I had stayed in with that power base, I would have been able to argue fairly effectively for amendments to the bill that they produced. Now, I might not have got them through, but I got some of them through. Um, 
going out of the Labour Party meant I was also, in a sense, out of the trade union movement. And anything I said had a negative effect upon the, what had been my colleagues. I mean, if I'd said two and two is four, they said, no, it's five. But setting up the Scottish Labour Party, was that something that was before its time or, or a mistake? We're, we, I mean, when I say we, you know, talking about Alec Neil, Joe Farrell, Lindsay Patterson, um, we thought it was the right thing to do. That the British Labour Party had betrayed the, the, the Scottish working class, so you needed a Scottish Labour Party. Now, we would be in alliance with the British one, but, you know, Scottish, Scottish Labour Party. We've never actually regretted setting it up. But we made the mistake we didn't prepare and we didn't analyse. Now, recently I did analysis for Alex Salmond on Alba, looking at the space that's available to a breakaway party from the mothership. If there's no space, doesn't matter what the logic is, you don't get anywhere. Did you tell him that? I did. Before the election? Well, uh, uh, well uh, no, what I said to him was, we don't know what the space is. You know, whether people will stick with it, sorry, stick with the second vote for the SNP or work the logic and give it to you. But that will determine, you know, that, that's the space you're in. Uh, half the space is unionist and you're not going to get any votes for them. Uh, for us, at that time, the Labour Party was still major dominant. The trade union was still a massive force in the country. So when you look back on it, we didn't do that analysis. And when you look back on it, there wasn't any space for us. However, however correct we were about the betrayal, you know, and however correct we, we produced good policies, it didn't matter. There was no space for us. And of course, you were also, we also had the problem of being branded as traitors. You know, straight, plain, simple traitors. Uh, and were the target of attack on every occasion. I mean, there was one night in the House of Commons where I was debating during the bill and you know, I was under attack from every... The, the Tories might as well have gone home. And I went up to check my speech with a Hansard guy and he said to me, oh, that was very exciting, Mr Sellers. I said, no, if you're the bear in the bear pit, it's no. <laughs> Do you see the parallels there then with the Alba Party now? Well, the one thing, they're not being called as traitors. And nobody in the SNP, a lot of people in the SNP understand why they've left to join Alba. So they're not being, you know, we were, we were hated for what we did. I mean, you, you really had to feel the waves of distaste coming towards you. How did that affect you? Um, oh, I was ill. You know, look, I was born in the Labour Party. Everything I had in my political education, I owed to the Labour Party. And there was I being called a traitor and treated like a leper. And also, you have in your mind all the time, you know, am I a traitor? 
you know, you know, have, you know, have, have I really betrayed the Labour Party that I came from? Uh, all the friends I had suddenly disappeared and they became intense opponents. You know, in, in South Ayrshire, the day after I left the Labour Party, the buzz round was, it wasn't a good MP anyway, we covered up from all these times. You know, that, that sort of thing. Um, and if you were an SLP and you went into Newcombe that can chart the door, you were told to F off, we don't vote for traitors. Uh, so I developed an ulcer. I mean, I was really very ill during the 79 uh, referendum. I, mean, I, I remember coming out of a meeting in Lanark somewhere, going to my car and vomiting into the snow. Jesus, blood was all over the place. Did you feel justified in the end by the result of the 79 referendum? No. Um, Did you feel disappointed with Scottish people for that? No. Funnily enough, Ruth Wishart interviewed me, I think, on the Saturday or the Sunday. Um, and she was very surprised because I said, no, I saw something, there was something there. You know, I'm not, you know, we beat this time, but, you know, there, there's still something there to build on. She was quite surprised because, you know, everybody was flat as a pancake. But just going around, I, 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 began, I tried to understand why we had done it. You know, it was a hellish winter. Um, it was the winter of discontent. Labour were ambiguous. You know, the poster from Prime Minister Callaghan didn't say vote yes. It said it's up to you. In other words, if you want to vote no, that's okay with me. You know, uh, so that you know that, and the Labour Party was in neutral at the very best. Was in neutral, and you had people like Robin Cook and Tam Dial who were Labour, telling folk that this was a bad thing. Uh, so you know, I understood the pressures that came on people. And there's one woman in Newcombe on polling day, about maybe seven at night, she came over to me and said, oh, I'm awfully worried. My son's a customs officer at Irvine. I mean, his job. And I said to her, look, you know, <laughs> customs isn't he within the, you know, but it didn't matter. She had been frightened. Because you, you want to look at some of the stuff they said, you know, the end of the world. This is an assembly you're talking about. We hardly any powers. The end of the world was coming if we voted. There was a an old group got on the train at King's Cross, and when they crossed Berwick, they put on uniforms and went round asking everybody for their passports to show what would happen if you voted for an assembly. So, you know, the fear, that was the first time Project Fear was ever brought to bear. So presumably then, in 2014, none of that surprised you? No, no, no. Now, in fact, it was quite interesting what I was talking about. And I said, I've already been through this. <laughs> you know, this is, Project Fear is standard practice. I mean, so Jim, just so that we don't go through the next 30 years as well, but from that point, you obviously did complete that journey and joined the SNP. What finally allowed you to join the SNP? The formation of the 79 group, because the SNP got scotched in 79. And a lot of people like Stephen Maxwell, Andy Curry, Margaret MacDonald, Christensen, Rosanna Cunningham said, the problem was that you pretended that there's no difference between the Duke of Buccleuch and a dustman. There is, there's a class difference. So we've got to take class into account. I had nothing to do. I didn't even know the 79 group was being formed. 
but they, they, they formed it, which allowed me, I mean, that meant that socialism and a socialist was regarded as legitimate. And that, that allowed me to go in. Either that or I was out completely. And I didn't want to, to come out of politics completely. Are you still in the SNP? Yes. And you spoke at the Alba conference? Well, in a fringe. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would speak at a fringe meeting in the Labour Party. You know, it's, um, I, um, I didn't join Alba and I won't join Alba. Um, Alba and the SNP means the movement is split. And a split movement will not win. So I'm hoping the change of leadership in the SNP sometimes going to happen. I'm staying in the SNP, hoping to influence people to say, look, we've got to have a rapprochement with the people who left uh, to join Alba. They're not traitors. They want the same as us. They're very good people, good record in, in the movement, maybe a, a federal relationship, you know, where... Alba affiliates to the SNP. And that, that, that's my future aim. And that staying in the SNP, I hope, will allow me to have some degree of influence. How disappointed do you feel right now at where we are? I mean, we've got Boris Johnson, we've had Brexit, and I know you've got your own views around that, but it was an issue for a lot of Scots. And we've got a pandemic. Why is independence not a bigger issue? No work's been done. I mean, I, I think um, the political crime, in quotation marks, of Nicola Sturgeon is that she's led people astray. Like, uh, you know, a Scottish grand old Duke of York, marching them up to the top of their end of Referendum Hill, marching them down again, no work being done. Um, I mean, we've had this the day after the Brexit referendum, uh, all we've had is a Scottish referendum. The Scottish re- I mean, she's never formally asked for it, for a start. Uh, and it just, it's just, it's kept everybody diverted from what needs to be done. Now, whether folk like it or not, Brexit happened. And that's a new paradigm. What was, it was no longer the case. Our relationship with the EU is going to be different. Our relationship with England is going to be different. You need new policies in those circumstances. What is our post-Brexit policy? If it's just what she says, go back into the EU, well, that lends itself to the serious question, will you get back in? And what would the terms be? Would Spain veto you? So there's a lot there that's just hanging in the air, wasted time. Whereas what we need to sit down and say, Post-Brexit, we need a new economic policy. We need to have a look at a new economic model because the model produced by Andrew Wilson, and I like Andrew, but I didn't expect Andrew to do anything other than Andrew would do, which is to produce an orthodox model of an economy. Basically, very similar to the one we've got, which is a failed model, so we need a new model. But what is that new model? huge amount of work required to be done uh, and we haven't done it. I suppose the other thing I was reflecting on, Jim, is if we are led to believe, as we are, that there could be a referendum in 2023... No chance. Well, all I was going to say was, if you reflect back to 2014 and the two years ahead before the referendum, Scotland was fizzing. There was a lot of energy, a lot of work going on. That's just not there at the moment. But, you know, no politician should ever dismiss the instincts of the people. I think the people instinctively know 
that there is no case to be argued at the present time. That they know that Brexit has made a change in the world and there's no change of policy um, whatsoever. I mean, if you went to them and you said, what's your energy policy? They don't have one. You know, what, what do you want to do with the Scottish universities? They don't have a policy on that. How are you going to get full employment? What is your policy for inward investment? Do you want it or don't you want it? Or where do you want it from? And what do you want it to do? How do you rebuild an economy from the pandemic? Well, absolutely. How is it that a party with about 115,000 members, there must be an abundance of experience and talent there. How is it there's no policy committees? But are you, I presume you're not saying that you don't believe the case could be made right now. It's just it's not being made. I, I think the new case has to be made. I, I think the case, in principle, is very clear. We are attached to an England which is still in its post-empire delusional period. You know, global Britain, where you know, give a lead to the world. If you, if you read it, if you watch the House of Commons sometimes, you think you're in... Fairyland, where guys talking about leading the world. You know, you've got, you've, got, you've, you've got to go to Asia before you find people able to lead the world. So we've done nothing that really matters in that way. But we need to be free of it economically as much as we can. Now, when I say free of it economically, we are in England's sphere of influence. We will always be in England's sphere of influence. We are... Two people, well, we're counting the Welsh, which is part of the Kingdom of England, on an island together. You know, that's what geography has left us with. And they're a big country, we're a small nation. So we'll be in its sphere of influence. So you need an economic policy that takes that into account, but doesn't allow you to be overwhelmed by it. We require to be independent in order to reconstruct the economy in a different way. I'm not happy with a low-wage, high-unemployment economy. I want it different from that. And I look at it in the context of the world. What do you think of the Scottish Greens going into government with the SNP? I think it's suicidal. For who? For both. In what way? Well, first of all, the Greens immediately compromised their position you know, in order to keep the ministerial positions. I mean, you know, the, the Greens have paraded themselves as the purest political people in the land. And you get your first test and you fail it. And, you know, they'll have, there, there will be other ones where they will meet the same test and fail. Uh, the SNP then hooks itself to an organisation which is opposed to production, which is opposed to all that a modern economy is going to require. And they will pay a price for that. Should we even touch the gender issue? Well, I mean, you're going to have... Here we are. We have huge poverty among children. We have real problems in education. We have just ruined the shipbuilding reputation <laughs> by what's happened at Ferguson's Yard. <laughs> and here we are 
we've got a major housing problem. As the taxi driver was telling me, you know, he was telling me the price, he was going through Edinburgh, telling me the price that people are having to pay for renting houses and not enough being built. You've got that going on. And the priority appears to be to allow me to self-identify as a woman and go into what I regard as essential safe spaces for my daughters and my granddaughters. That's the priority. I mean, there's priorities screaming out for which we are wholly responsible. And apparently they are not the priority. We get hate crime as a priority and we now get this gender... Rec- I, I think that the SNP will rue the day when all the women in Scotland, all the women, wake up to what they're proposing. Well, let's talk about an important woman then in your life, Margot. What do you think Margot MacDonald would have thought if she was still an MSP in the Parliament and with all of this going on? But Margot would probably think they'd lost their, lost their mind, gone off the head. Yep. I mean, Margot's a very... <laughs> I mean, somebody else says to me, you know, um, how did you get on with feminists? I say, I, I was married to the most formidable woman in the UK for 33 years. You know, she would talk to me about uh, feminism, but uh, she would think they're going off their head. Uh, you know, Margot was very brave. Um, you know, she took on assisted dying and she took on the protection of prostitutes. And she would probably say to them now, look, if there is a problem with the speed by which someone genuinely has to change role from male to female uh, and the protocols are not working, then solve the protocols. You don't solve the problem by taking away the rights and pretend that women are not women. I mean, Margot had a very logical mind, and I I would imagine that was how she would apply it to this particular case. I mean, for you not having Margot around, what's keeping you inspired and going? I I still get angry. I mean, I I go around and I, I, I see two, three, four-year-old Wayne's and where I have my coffee in the morning, the kids are going to James Gillespie's. And I watch them and I think, what's your future? And I visit a deprived area and I'm reminded of something Jimmy Reid said, you know, what happens to children in a deprived area. Now, this is a paraphrase, Jimmy. That you go into a working class area in a deprived street and up in that bedroom there's somebody who should be a scientist will never know they should be a scientist. Somebody who should be a ballerina will never know. You know, somebody who should be a writer will never know because the horizons will be deliberately so low. And I still get angry. I, I, this is not necessary. That's what I get angry about. It is not necessary. And there are solutions which can be applied to the condition of the working class in Scotland. By the party of government that you support? Well, I don't support I didn't vote for them the last time. Well, you know, I'm a, the, the, I've explained the reason I'm in it. 
is that I'm hoping that there will come a time when there will be a realisation that there has to be a rapprochement with the people who left and formed ALBA. And if I've still got any influence, which is always a question mark, then I'm, I'm there inside the SNP to argue the case for the rapprochement. But that doesn't mean to say that I vote for the SNP. I have not voted for the SNP for a long time in elections. I wouldn't vote for this. Would you vote for independence if it was tomorrow? Uh, that's actually a hard one because the vote would be about something we don't know about. I mean, I'm just um, reading a book by Lord Sumption at the moment, <coughs> Law at a Time of Crises. I don't agree with everything he said, but he's a thinker, and he does point out <coughs> that a referendum is taken in principle, but you don't know the consequences of it you know, until you get the nitty-gritty. So if there's no nitty-gritty... I don't know how we could be asked to vote for independence tomorrow morning. Now, if someone said, we want to vote on the principle, do you think on principle? Yes, I could vote for that. But I don't think that would win, even if I voted for it. I couldn't argue the case, by the way. I would find it impossible to argue the case because there's no policy upon which I could go onto a platform and say, this is what it means. That's why I say earlier, there is no work being done, and work has to be done. You've got to produce a new white paper, not just from the SNP government, but from the whole movement, that says, this is what we believe Scotland requires. This is the economic structures that we are going to require. These are the priorities for investment. This is what we are ambitious to create. That is not happening.